I did end up running the second half of the race significantly slower than the first half, but they slowed down even more. Uh, so I ended up winning the race by this uh, this, this rather uh, spur of the moment strategy of just chasing the Spanish guy and then trying. Try. But but it meant I ended up running like the last two thirds of the race completely on my own, which is difficult to say the least. But at the same time, I was thinking, "Holy shit, I could win this race! This is this is this is a big deal. I've always wanted to win a race, and this is a big one. Like wow. this is the New York Ultra." Uh, so I was so I was so excited that I just found extra energy from somewhere. Welcome to the Chasing Passion Podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chasing Passion Podcast where it's my job, my duty if you will, to interview people from all walks of life who are following their passion and doing what they love. And I guess the idea here is to learn from these people, learn from these unique stories and perhaps something resonates with you and that is something that you want to pursue on your own. So this week we are actually joined by Dara O'Carney who has a super interesting career. So just to summarize, he is a poker professional, he has been involved in ultra running and also he's been working as a tech consultant in his early years. Now, how did all this happen? So first of all, he started off by working as a tech consultant and he was actually one of the first people involved in the HTML project, which is the markup language of the World Wide Web. And then he went on to play professional poker at the age of 42, which is very, very rare in the poker scene. And there's a few interesting stories behind that. So first of all, he is also a sponsored player by Unibet. And if you try to find people who were beyond the age of 50 there's very very few sponsored players and Dara is actually one of these people and how did he get involved in poker well first of all he was working his daytime job and while he was working there he had a lot of downtime a lot of free time so well occasionally he did and he used his daytime to play online poker and one day he realized he was making more money from online poker than he was in his daytime job and that is when he decided to go professional. Now, ultra running happened in between and he got involved with that just spontaneously because he wanted to get into shape. So he started off by running 5Ks, 10Ks, uh, 10Ks and then decided to run a marathon. And then, hmm, okay, I'm going to give the ultra running thing a go. So some of his achievements from ultra running include winning the 2005 Tresco Marathon. In 2006, he won the New York Road Runner. 60k ultramarathon and in 2007 he won the irish 24 hour he was the irish 24 hour running champion along with many many different other achievements he has done in the sport of running and when it comes to the poker side of things he has won the 2008 european deep stack poker championship in 2015 he won the mini irish open and finished second in the event 45 of the world series of poker he is also considered to be the number one poker satellite strategist and he has co-written a book with Barry Carter on how to succeed in poker satellite in poker satellite. And the book is called Poker Satellite Strategy: How to Qualify for the Main Events of High Stakes Lives and Online Poker Tournament um, yeah, po- online tournaments. Um, as of 2018, I'm just pulling these figures from Wikipedia. He has almost 3 million in caches online and $1 million in live events. Um, 
on top of all that, he is also the host of the award-winning podcast, which is called The Ship Race, and it's co-hosted with his best friend, David Lappin. Um, and you can also find more information about Dara and the work he's doing on his blog, which is a very well-respected blog in the poker scene. And the blog is called Doke's Blog. Doke is his nickname. And then, yeah, so if you just Google Doke's Blog, it'll come up right there. And if you want to learn about, um, reach out to Dara and learn more about him, you can find him through Twitter. Twitter handle is Dara O'Carney. So that is Dara O'Carney. And yeah, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dara. Dara, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Demantas. Very happy to be here. So, I mean, you have a very diverse career, like you've done a lot of things, but for the people who don't necessarily know who you are, could you just explain a little bit about what you do and what are you all about? So I guess like if you were at a party and someone asked you, what do you do? What would, what would your answer be to that question? Um, well, first of all, I'd probably think about lying uh, and giving <laughs> them the wrong answer. But uh, no, seriously, um, at the moment, I'm a professional poker player and I have been a professional poker player now for the past 12 years or so. That's been the main thing for the last 12 years. Um, before that, I was involved in um, the IT industry for a, for, for a couple of decades. Um, but yeah, poker is something I took up quite late, um, initially thinking just as a hobby, uh, but it very quickly became my job and has been for the last 12 years. Hmm. And when you said you picked up poker pretty late, like you picked it up at age 42, but was that always offline poker or online poker? Or did you, yeah, did you start off with offline poker or how did it happen? I actually started with online poker, um, believe it or not. And again, like a lot of people, because of my age, they assume I started as a live player, um, but that wasn't the case at all. What essentially happened was my main passion at the time uh, was ultra running. Um, Mm. I... I represented Ireland in ultra running and <clears throat> had been pretty successful for a while at it, but uh, that was kind of winding down um, because of my age. I kind of figured this can only last a few more years. Um, so I was, I've always been the kind of person who wanted to do something competitive um, in my teens and early twenties. I played chess at a fairly high level uh, in my early twenties. I switched to bridge uh, and played bridge at a very high level for a few years also played backgammon so i was kind of looking around for something that i could do where age wouldn't really be an issue and i saw the irish poker open on tv um and just looking at the field you could see that there were lots of older people in the field so i thought okay well that's obviously something that uh, where age isn't going to be a much of a factor so maybe i'll take that up my brother was a sort of a semi-professional player at the time i was aware that he was playing so i got him to show me uh the basics um and started playing online uh, and did very well actually right from the start. Um, combination of luck, and I think I just have a f- fairly good natural aptitude for games. Um, so within a sh- fairly short period, less than a year, um, I was making more from online poker than I was from my um, my wow. day job. Uh, and yeah, I got to the stage where I thought, okay, well, I actually enjoy this a lot more than my day job so um I'll, I'll 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 try first year or so i was kind of balancing the two um and then afterwards i went pretty much full-time on poker and, mm. and i've been full-time since that's that's super interesting and like you know when you were working at your day job as a tech consultant, tech consultant um how much time did you allocate towards um poker how much time did you actually play 
or spending yeah, money about poker and so on. Yeah, it it was actually very uh, helpful that that was my job because there was actually quite a lot of downtime uh, in my job. Right. I was in by by the stage of, by this stage of my early 40s I was an independent uh, tech consultant so I took on different uh, projects as they arose. Um, what that meant in practice was there were periods where I was super busy um, so there were periods where I was working every waking hour but then there were other periods where you know I might just have one meeting in a day um, so but I had to be at my computer in case stuff came up. So I found myself in situations where I was at my computer for most of the day, but didn't actually have much to do a lot of the time. Mm. So I was spending all that time playing poker, learning poker. Um, so it was perfect from that point of view. I would say pretty quickly um, I was playing more poker than I was doing my normal job. And what I found like pretty interesting is that you picked up poker pretty quickly. So within a year you were playing at a high level. Why do you think that is? What, what do you think separated you from all the other online players? Um, it's a very interesting question. I think, yeah, like when I think about it, my original plan was I actually thought my ultra running career might last into my late 40s. And I was thinking, well, okay, poker, maybe if I study it really hard, by the time I'm 50, I'll be able to do it at a reasonably high level. But actually what happened was within a year, um, I was playing pretty much at the top level um, and playing professionally because it just happened so fast for me. I think what it is is, first of all, I obviously have a natural aptitude for games. Um, Every strategy game I've ever played, I've gotten very good at. But the other thing I think is I just put so much time into it and I was so driven. Um, I really, for, for, for most of the first year, I think I just dreamt, slept, breathed poker that was the only thing I thought about I sort of have a naturally obsessive personality anyway and uh, poker just became the latest obsession so I put a huge amount of effort into it um, and then I do think I have a natural aptitude and I'm good at learning Um, so I think all of those things kind of created the perfect storm where you know the traditionally not too many people come into poker uh, these days particularly online play um, after the age of you know, 23 or 24, that's kind of the earliest you have to start. And, and when I was in the chess world, I think the thing which stopped me from getting to that very top in chess is I started too late because I learned the game at eight. And apparently like everybody who's ever been world-class at chess was already playing by the age of four. So even eight was too late, but poker is a little bit different. Um, so I think, yeah, basically just, just being so driven um, and poker being the kind of thing that you can study if you're if you're very logical um that sort of created the situation where i could actually uh, rise to the top hmm. and you know you also work as the well you're the ambassador for ubinet um and what sort of like what do you like what what sort of stuff do you do actually as part of that job yeah, the the ambassador thing is quite interesting because it's uh, this is actually the third company uh, online site that I've been ambassador for. The first one came a couple of years into my career when I was already seen as one of the better known players in Ireland. So mm. an Irish an Irish only site approached me, um, and then they unfortunately went out of business. And then another one, uh, another Irish only site, I, I represented them for a few year, years. Unibet came t- a few years ago. Um, and essentially what the job is, you're, you're, you're a brand, the official title is brand ambassador, which means you are representing the brand. So when I play live, for example, um, I patch up and represent the brand. When people ask me about, you know, what's it like playing on Unibet, I can, I, I can tell them that stuff. I do media interviews. Um, I, I write a blog. 
Um, I just generally promote, I'm active on social media as well. And uh, I do a podcast of my own with um, another Unibet ambassador that my best friend, David Lappin, um, which is probably one of the top three or four most listened to podcasts in the world in the purely in the poker space. So yeah, it's a combination of basically you are just sort of an, um, a publicity whore for the, <laughs> the people that you are, you're representing, but uh, it's been a very good arrangement with Unibet because they're a company I believe in very strongly. Uh, their whole focus is on making poker as much fun for recreational players as possible. And that really is the key to poker. If the people who played recreationally don't have fun, the whole thing falls over. Um, and uh, that's that's very much the the Unibet ethos. Hmm. And like you know, poker is very much advertised towards a younger generation or towards younger people. Um, yeah. If you were in charge of all the marketing of poker, um, how would you how would you go about marketing poker to all all ages, all all levels? This is a really good question, and this is something I've actually gotten quite exercised about in the past. I actually think the poker industry does a really bad job of marketing in general mm. because they market specifically to eighteen-year-old males, uh, and they don't market very well to females. They don't market very well to the older generation, and it maybe made sense at one point in there in in the past, but it makes zero sense now because. What do you need to play online poker? You need time on your hands and you need disposable income. Uh, those are two things which most 18-year-old males don't have. Most 18-year-old males are studying or trying to build their career at that point of view. Uh, they're starting out. People who do have time on their hands and uh, disposable income tend to be older people, particularly retired people. Uh, and yet the poker industry makes very little attempt to market to those people. The the way poker is marketed is the way they think appeals to 18-year-old males, which is to make it look like a, a glamorous um, world where you can make lots of money, etc. The concerns of older generation tend to be more like, is my money safe uh, if, I, if I play online? Are there good consumer protections, etc. in place? And poker has done a very bad job on that front. Um, there have been a couple of major sites that went under and people lost money. And when you talk, when I talk to older people and I play live, that's always a concern. They say, well, look, I'm not going to put my money in a site and then find, wake up one morning and find it's all gone. So other parts of the gambling industry have been much better at this. Like, for example, sports betting sites, when a sports betting site goes down, the other sports betting sites tend to come together and pay off the people who lost their money. And that means then that sports bettors uh, are more confident about their 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 funds long term but but there is still this problem with poker one of the huge sites full tilt basically a few years ago went down and that that's still out there the idea that uh, your money might not be safe so i think the poker industry needs to do a much better job convincing people that um their money is safe um i think one of the things which makes unibet good is it's a you know poker is a very small part of what they do i think it's only two percent of their business most of their business is uh, sports betting and online casino so it's part of a larger gambling uh, online online gambling and online gaming group um and in those industries there is more con- confidence about uh, liquidity and safety of people's funds but uh, some of the poker only sites yeah for sure um even i would be a bit suspicious about leaving too much money on there and which sites would be like the which sites would you say are the best? Which sites would you recommend to beginner poker player who wants to get into poker but not really sure how to begin? Uh, would you give any recommendations to sites they should visit? 
Yeah, well, apart from Unibet, who obviously I I, uh, I represent, and I'm um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm therefore somewhat biased, or at least could be accused of being somewhat biased. I mean, I do genuinely believe Unibet is the best, but apart from them. I think uh, you want to try and stick to the more reputable sites, the ones that have been around for a while. So um, I'm a fairly big fan of what uh, people like Party Poker do as well. Um, and some of the smaller sites, micro gaming, unfortunately, micro gaming are going out of business. Um, but yeah, I would say probably those sites are probably the best value at the moment um the sites you need to be wary of are the sites that haven't been around for very long and there's mm. a there's an increasing thing in poker where more businesses moving to sort of unregulated apps um and they're they're circumventing regulation by presenting themselves as apps rather than uh, you know being online sites and I, right. I would have very very big concerns about the the first of all even the legality of the of a lot of those apps but also whether the money is safe long term Oh, is that the case? Like some apps aren't even legal, and they just yeah. Just I mean, they, 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 yeah. Like there, there are the, the the regulated sites, and they're all subject to fairly strict regulation. And it's important mm. to look at where where somebody is, uh, where they're regulated as well. I mean, <clears throat> Full Tilt, the, the the big company that went um, bust, they had their license from uh, the Kanawaki uh, Nation in Canada. Uh, so you know. Um, that was presumably just a financial arrangement. The the more reputable sites tend to be um, corporated in places like Malta or Isle of Man, uh, where they are actually subject to fairly stringent financial regulation and so on. So, um, but the apps essentially say, "Well, look, we're not a poker site, so we don't have to do any of that stuff. We're just an app." Um, and yeah, I mean that's 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 a whole different gray area. Mm, yeah, don't go there. Um, and let's just say there's a complete beginner who wants to get into poker and you were in charge of teaching this individual to perhaps win a tournament such as the Irish Open or the World Series of Poker um, in four weeks. So you have four weeks to do. How would you go about training someone to win that championship or win that tournament? Um, w- well... When when people ask me if it's if it's more difficult or easier to get into poker now than when I started 12 years ago. Um, I always say it's more difficult in some respects because everybody has gotten better and the general standard is higher, but it's easier in other respects and that there's far more good information out there. There's a lot of free um, training information available on YouTube. Um, obviously, we do we do some strategy on our podcast as well and we, and we put that content up on YouTube too. So you can you can you can learn a lot from the sort of free content that's out there on youtube there's also training sites you can go to um there's there's a bit of an uptick for books at the moment as well in poker um there was a few years where not too much too many new poker books were being written but now recently uh, there've been there've been a lot more books so i think just immerse yourself in all the content that you can find um and and take what you can you, you do have to be careful because there is some bad content out there uh so I, I probably my my main um, contribution will be just to direct them towards the good content uh, I see, okay. and tell and tell and, and, and tell them to work from that. Because it's all just practice in a way, then is it? Or how, yeah. it really is. No, no, it is. I, it it absolutely is. It's it, it's it's almost like um, a sport hmm. in that uh, the more reps you do, the more training you do, and and, and playing, you're just 
constantly tr uh, training yourself and and that's why online poker is so good in particular like if you play live uh you're gonna you're playing one table you're getting maybe 22 hands an hour you have to fold 18 of those 22 hands so you learn at a very slow pace if you're playing online you can play whatever number of tables uh, you want at the same time um so for example i play 12 tables at the same time online plays faster as well because people fold faster the action there's no physical deal etc so typically when i'm playing 12 hands sorry 12 tables uh I'm playing something like something close to a thousand hands an hour compared wow. to, you know, 25 live. So one hour online is 40 times more valuable in terms of practice as live. So I would say play lots, play lots online. And, and the other great thing about online is like, if you're playing live, probably the cheapest tournament you can find anywhere is maybe 20, 20 euro. Um, you can find tournaments online that, that cost set, a few cents to enter or are even free. Uh, free rolls um so you can you can practice by playing uh really cheap tournaments and learn quickly that way as well hmm. and like apart from the reason that you can play on on multiple um tables and so on in offline poker what would you say are the biggest kind of differences when it comes to playing offline and offline offline and online because i know you started off with offline poker and then you transitioned into sorry you started off with online poker but then you transitioned yeah. over to offline poker um, and what were the kind of biggest kind of differences you saw? Like, was it was it more difficult to play? Was it more challenging? Did, did, was it even better because you could read people and so on? How was that experience? Yeah, that's the, the, uh, they're they're all very good questions and points. There are a couple of fundamental differences. First of all, obviously, the fact that you can see the person means, mm. as you say, you can read them um, and you get a sense of their comfort levels and so on. So that's that's a different skill that typically online players, uh, a, a lot of online players, when they move to live, they don't even acknowledge that as a skill. They kind of think it's all um, made up. It's, it's in the imagination of live mm. players. But it is a, it is a thing, particularly um, less experienced players tend to go, give away a lot of information at the table. So that, that's one difference. Uh, the game plays differently as well. I think that's down to a couple of factors. First of all, people don't want to look stupid live. Um, so, you know, if you do a stupid play online and you bust a tournament, you, nobody cares, nobody knows. You go back to watching Netflix or whatever else you want to do. <laughs> but you do it live, you have to put up with, like, standing up, walking away, hearing everybody laughing or talking about what a what a what, what a bonehead play that was uh so that kind, that kind of affects things too um in general i would say though the standard is much higher online because just of the nature of online the better players who stick around have to get pretty good um it's essentially like an accelerator's evolution pool where the sharks eat up the the minnows pretty quick um and if you don't become a shark uh or you don't have unlimited funds and you're willing to just keep losing uh you just drop out of online poker unless you get good so whereas live poker it's it's it's, it's a much slower pace of play um i think the biggest reason why most people don't do as well as they should live or sorry online and i've been thinking about this recently because i know a lot of players who are very good poker players um but they play just live and when they try online they uh, they don't fare as well and i always think of a story when uh, you know i grew up in the 80s when sort of video arcades were the big thing and i had mm -hmm. a friend who was addicted to uh, to one of these uh, driving games where right uh racing car and he went to do his um his uh, his driving test one morning having been playing arcade games all day uh, the night before and he got into the car and he started slapping himself in the head and and said 
this is real. This is real. If you crash, you will die. You will die. <laughs> Completely freaked out the driving instructor. But he basically wanted to get it into his head that this was this was serious. This wasn't a game. Yeah. I think the biggest problem a lot of people have when they play online is that it just feels like a computer game for them. It doesn't feel like real poker. So they don't give it the same kind of focus and they don't they don't treat it as seriously. Um, I think the reason why I've always done well online poker is that I do basically give it full focus. Uh, for me, it's like just as important as a live game. Uh, there's absolutely no difference the fact that it's on a screen. Um, so therefore, I give it the same focus. I, I actually found there was a weird thing in my mentality as well, which I realized a few years into my career, which is the way most people start online is they deposit some money, they play, they lose, they deposit some more money, they play, they lose, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't actually go that route um, because when my brother taught me to play, um, he was obviously worried that I might lose a lot of money given my compulsive nature. So he's, he suggested I just play free rolls, these free to free to enter tournaments. Right. So I played free rolls. The second day I was playing online, I came second in uh, a free roll that had no 6,000 runners or something ridiculous. Yeah. Wow. And I got like 182 bucks. So I had 182 bucks in my account and I said to him, okay, well, what do I do with this money now? Uh, and he said, okay, we'll start playing really low stakes. So I did. And um, I was a winning player from the start. So the, 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 the amount just increased. So basically I've never deposited any money online. I've never actually put a cent online. And in the last 10, 12 years, I've pulled off whatever amount of money I'd needed to, to live. Uh, and it's all come from online poker. Um, similarly, when I play live poker, the, I pull the money from off from online, and I use that to buy in uh, uh, to, to, to the live tournaments. So, because of because it's literally come from nothing, I actually I'm sort of very careful with my online money. I think of it as like, well, I put a lot of work into spinning this up. Uh, I don't ever want to go bust. So, I think that mentality drives me when I'm playing online to treat it really, really seriously. Um, I I don't want to lose the money I've made already. Uh, I sort of, it's a matter of pride that I've never had to put money online and I've supported myself and my family for the past 12 years uh, for my online winnings. So, whereas when I play live, it's kind of a bit different. Like if I played like the Irish Open, for example, uh, which is a 1,000 buy-in, once I paid the 1,000, it's gone. Um, And I kind of know most of the time I'm not going to cash the tournament. So, it's not that I write it off completely, but I'm not that upset when I if I don't cash and I lose the money uh, because I think, okay, well, it came from online anyway and I'll just win more online. Um, so there's always been this weird kind of thing where I'm actually more careful with my online money than my offline money. I think other people kind of have the opposite problem because when they hand across physical cash, it mm. feels real to them, mm. whereas the online money can just be a, a number on the screen. Um, and if if that number decreases by a thousand, it doesn't feel the same as losing a thousand in real life. But uh, but for me, it's always been the contrary. I think that's a very smart idea because, like, when you think about it, like poker is often associated with gambling. You know, oh, if I yeah. lose money, I'm gonna put in more money and so on. And that's how people yeah. end up losing money. But if you did what you did, you know, invest initially, and then whatever you have there, just leave it there. I mean, if you have a hundred euro, well, play with play with smaller tables can, until you can go up to the big boys and so on. I think that's absolutely a super good yeah. strategy because then you're not losing money. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really important as you're learning not to be losing uh, too much. I mean, most people do lose at the start, but if but you can literally play the smallest stakes, and and, and there are still free tournaments as well online. Mm. So you you can you, you you can you can learn that way, um, and and then you know most people 
sad to say, don't have the aptitude and will never be winning players. I think the number, the numbers I normally see are like three percent of poker players end up as winning players. But at least don't, uh, you know, don't don't um, lose your house while you're finding out oh, yeah. uh, how, just just how good you are at poker. And you know, you said three percent are the winning players. Um, so why what do you think separates the three percent from the other ninety seven percent? Like, what are the main characteristics, the skills that are required to be a, a top poker player? Um, there's a certain amount of technical skills, but I think most of the technical skills are particularly now with so much content out there if you put in the study you can learn the technical skills i think uh really what it boils down to is some personal characteristics uh the other stuff temperament is much more important there's a couple of ways that 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 poker circuit can get in your head and um you can go wrong one is people find it very hard to deal when they when they've lost uh, some money in the short term Hmm. so they end up chasing losses this is this is a problem in all forms of gambling obviously uh, where people feel that they're stuck is the phrase they use, and they have to get they have to get back to even, so they they go on playing and and, and usually suboptimally. Um, another thing is that like emotions a very bad thing in poker. You you will make money in the long term by being very clear in your thought processes and making correct decisions based on the circumstance, not based on how you feel or what emotions you're experiencing. Now. There, there's what we refer to as variance, which is essentially luck is a huge part in poker. So, you know, you you can play perfectly and still lose. Uh, you can play very badly and still win. There, in the short term, there's a, there, there's a luck element. And that can be very difficult to deal with as well. If you're, uh, if you're playing very well and you're losing and you're seeing somebody else playing very badly and winning, that can sort of mess with your head and, and, and people end up doing stupid stuff because of that. So mostly I would say the characteristic is sort of self-discipline um, just being able to sort of uh, recognize if you're upset because of uh, the way things are going and either not let that upset affect your decisions and the way you're playing or, you know, quit for the day and come back tomorrow with a clear head. Um, that's sort of the, 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 the crucial aspect. The other thing is that, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's a growing pool of knowledge, let's say poker. So to, to remain a winning player, you have to get better and better uh, right. as the competition gets better over time. A lot of people sort of stop improving and stop studying. And, you know, they might be one of the top five poker players in the world right now. And they think, okay, this is brilliant. I, I, I've got this game worked out and, right, they, okay. <laughs> and, and they start working. And then in three years time, they're not even winning players anymore because the whole level has risen and moved past them. And they uh, often they have to lose their entire bankroll before they realize that that's actually the situation, which is which which is kind of sad. There are a lot of poker career, you know, they say all oh, political careers end in failure um, because most politicians lose their last election. Uh, certainly, a lot of poker uh, careers end with the guy losing all his bank all his money. And you know, when when it comes to like professional players, um, wh- how what's the kind of win loss ratio? Even if you're a pro, even if you're very good at poker, how many times do you lose as opposed to win on on when you're playing a game? Yeah, that's a again, that's a really good question. Um, there's essentially two different uh, answers. The tour- tournament professionals divide into two, uh, or sorry, poker professionals divide into two different categories. There's guys like me who concentrate on tournaments, and then there are guys who play cash games. The guys who play cash games, who are who are 
big winning players tend to win twice as often as they lose. So they have twice as many winning sessions as losing sessions, but that still means they lose one time in three. Um, so, so they have to be uh, okay with losing, but, um, but at least they're winning more often than they're losing. Tournaments are trickier because um, typically they pay 15% of the field. So that means that 85% of the players who enter a tournament are not going to get anything from the tournament. They're going to end up losing their buy-in. The, the top professions will obviously cash a bit more than the 15%, um, maybe 17, 18, maybe even up to 20% of the time. But that still means that 80% of the time when you enter a tournament, you lose money. Um, now, when you're playing online and, you know, in, in, in a given night, I play 40 tournaments typically online, uh, then you're giving yourself 40 chances. So it will, uh, it'll, it, it'll, it, it'll balance out quicker. But, but nevertheless, um, from talking to other tournament players and very much my own experience is that you will have at least twice as many losing nights as you will have winning nights. Wow, Typically okay. what happens is, yeah, most of your nights will be losing nights, but they will be relatively small losing nights. Mm. So the way a professional might operate, and again, I'm just pulling these numbers out of the air, but like maybe you lose on a, on a typical night, you lose 500. Uh, um, but then once every once every while you have a night where you win 5,000 or 10,000 and then, then that wipes out a lot of the 500s. So if you're a winning player, those big nights will um, more than balance out the losing nights, but you will still have the experience of that you lose most nights. And that's very difficult to deal with emotionally because, you know, if you do any other job in the world and you go in and do your job well, uh, you get paid at the end of the week or the month or whatever. And you have that sort of positive reinforcement when you're an online poker player, um, playing specializing in tournaments you can go in do your job perfectly and still two times out of three you end up with less money than if you had taken the day off <laughs> and that could, that can that can really mess with your head you just have to be able to like zoom out and take the big picture and re- recognize look this is what happens this is just the nature of the beast if i keep playing well and doing my job properly I will make money in the long term, but I'm still going to always have more losing experiences than, than winning experiences. And it is really difficult because, you know, there's been research done about around human psychology. And one of the things which keeps coming up is um, studies which show that f- for people to stick with something, um, they need twice as many positive experiences typically as negative experiences. So people are willing to accept a negative experience in what they do, providing there's not too many of them and providing there are more positive experiences. Uh, That seems to be the ratio. Now in in poker, that just can never be the ratio. You're always going to have more negative experiences than positive experiences. So the people who do it long-term have to find some way to sort of override that design flaw in the human brain that requires positive reinforcement all the time. Um, uh, and that's that's definitely one of the most challenging things. Yeah, I mean, like if you kept losing, like it's very difficult to mentally, you know, keep going and be positive about it. So yeah. I think that's you know not getting emotional, like that. That's what came across to me. And you know, when you go into a live tournament or whatever, um, what kind of mindset do you have? Like, what what kind of things do you think uh, before you start playing? Like, do you you know, like yeah, what kind of questions you ask yourself? What kind of mindset do you approach the game by, and so on? If that makes sense, um, the question. Yeah. I, this is something I took from, from, from my previous thing of ultra running too, which is I, I, I try not to get too worked up and excited. I try to be as unemotional as possible. 
the when when I, when I ran the really long races for Ireland, my the the guy who was in charge at the time used to say that more or less the best way to get to a a really long race was just to show up at the line and not not realize the race was about to start and then suddenly oh shit there's a race about to start and that was it so so like there was no excitement there was no anticipation because that's all a waste of nervous energy it's kind of the same in poker you don't really want to get too worked up or excited because if you do that 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 can affect your play it can affect your mindset you want to be completely calm you want to focus on the stuff that you can control so you want to think okay i'm just going to play my best I'm going to take each decision as it comes. I'm going to be watchful, watch what everybody else is doing, try and pick up as much information as I can. But I can't control the cards. I can't control how the cards are going to run. Um, I can't control the luck factor. I can't control any of that. So I just don't think about that. I just purely focus on my own decisions, uh, making the correct decisions, um, and gathering all the information that I can uh, that will help me make those decisions. Um, and also, I don't think about the big picture. I, I don't think about, oh, it'd be great to win this tournament. There's 200,000 for first or, or it'd be great to cash this tournament. There's 5,000 just for just just for making the money. That stuff is all a distraction. You really just have to focus on it's a it's a the, the job is to make decisions and to make those decisions as best you can and just focus on that and nothing else. And when it comes to like, you know, because obviously it's more difficult to make decisions when there's, well, I don't know, maybe it isn't, but when there's other people around you and like, does it ever happen that people kind of, you know, try and try and upset you, try and, you know, is that allowed in poker? Because I'm not really sure. I never played in a live tournament, but I love to at one stage. There, there, there's certainly a line you can go up to and there right. are some people whose games are based on trying to upset people uh, and I know some people who are really really good at it and these are players who are not that good technically themselves so you know if, if, if poker was a game where you were never allowed to say anything to anybody and everybody played they would lose but what they can do is they can get into people's head and upset them to the point where they're playing even worse the other, their opponents are playing even worse than them and that's sort of what their game is based on so yeah the the there is that aspect to it, um, all right. Um, I'm completely immune to it. When that happens at a table, I just feel like a spectator. I feel like I'm watching something that's happening, but it, it actually has nothing to do with me. Uh, it never impacts me. You know, people will say stuff to try uh, try and upset me, um, and my reaction is just, you know, they said that, but it doesn't actually mean anything. It doesn't, you know, doesn't. I, I'm not going to let it affect me in any way. Um, and actually it can be quite it can actually work out quite well for me if I have a player like that at the table because if you don't get upset but everybody else is getting upset and they're all playing badly as a result then you sort of it's not collateral damage it's it's collateral a collateral plus for you that this other player is upsetting everybody else causing them to play badly Mm. Um, and and if you can stick to your own game then you actually benefit from that Um, but yeah that's definitely a thing in poker um, again, one of the differences between online and live, uh, which is why a lot of online players don't like live. They don't like that aspect of it, people trying to upset other people. And when it comes to reading people, um, so you're at a table and you're trying to read other, your opponents, um, you're trying to read their minds in a way. Um, what kind of cues do you look for? Do you look at their, like, you know, perhaps their lips moving? Like, w- what are the kind of things you should be looking out for when you're playing live games in order to read people? Yeah, I mean everybody's personal, so you, sometimes you pick up very specific uh, tells. We refer to it as um, um, because you know, for example, 
it's largely a matter of just looking at somebody and seeing how comfortable they are or how nervous they seem. Um, particularly if it's different from an, from from how you've seen them in previous situations or settings. So if somebody is uh, you know looks reasonably comfortable most of the time and suddenly they're very nervous. Now again, you have to be careful because it is personal. Sometimes that actually means they have a very strong hand um, and they're nervous because because of that they're nervous slash excited other people it's because they have a very weak hand and they're nervous um so you you have to sort of observe but you also have to correlate um so if you see somebody acting in a certain way and then you get to see their hand and then you get to see them in acting the same way in the future you you kind of remember the previous example as i said most of the time it's just a matter of looking at somebody and trying to gauge their comfort levels and one of the classic ones is that when people start talking a lot that means they're actually very relaxed and because and they're relaxed because they have a strong hand. Uh, so one of the mistakes a lot of amateurs make is when they're at a table and there's a professional, they want to engage with professionals, so they'll, they'll, they'll chat away to them, but they tend to only do it when they have a strong hand themselves, when they're playing in a hand, because then they feel relaxed. When they're If they're bluffing, they feel nervous and they just shut up and, and, and freeze like a, a, a rabbit in the headlights. So that's one thing. Then sometimes you do pick up very, very specific tells. There was one lady I played with early in my career, um, actually the first year I was playing, and I played in the same game with her every week. And after a couple of weeks, I noticed she had this very um, specific tell, which was that if she was betting and she had a strong hand, she put the chips in in a normal way with her normal movement. But if she was bluffing, she would put the chips in, and then with the other hand, she would like wave in my mind, it was almost like she was waving the chips goodbye. That's the way I sort of categorized it. It was like, so every time she did this wave, she was bluffing and it was a hundred percent reliable. So, so in her case, when I was playing in a Hanukkah, I was literally just looking at her hands to see if she did that. Mm. Uh, no, 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 nothing really else matters. Um, so some people give away information with their hands. They, they move their chips or their cards in, in a different way when they're bluffing to when they have a strong hand. Uh, some people it's in their eyes. Um, there are some classic ones, like when people stare at you, like they're trying to intimidate you. It's more often than not a sign that they're bluffing um, and they're trying to intimidate you. If uh, on the other hand, they're very relaxed, uh, they're, um, they have a strong hand. And another one which comes up quite a bit is if when, when the cards come down on the middle of the table and the flop, if they look back at their chip stack uh, quickly, that's almost always a sign of strength um, because it means they like the cards that have come and they're thinking about how much they have to bet. Um, and then even if they check, you know that they have a strong hand. So there's a, there's a whole wide array of things. Now it's different for different people. And a friend of mine, Zachary Elwood has written a very good series of books uh, on poker tells in general. So I'm by no means an expert, but as a professional, I, I do certainly pick up a lot of stuff. And, you know, as a professional, like, what do you see, like, what are the common mistakes that you see other professionals making in the game of poker? Um, Like, is there any, like, common mistakes that even professionals make every day or on a, you know, often, quite often? Yeah, I mean, no professional is perfect. Um, hmm. So we all, we, we, we refer to our, 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 our persistent mistakes as leaks. And we do all have leaks. Most of most professions don't have too many technical leaks because you know they study away from the table. Um, and the last few years, there has been an advent of what we call solvers, which is computer software you can use to essentially uh, analyze situations and tell you what the correct play is. So professionals study with solvers; um, they kind of know the overall technical strategy. Most of the mistakes are 
in the in other areas either in terms of discipline in terms of like they're playing games they shouldn't be playing because they're thinking about how big the first prize is rather than how soft the opposition is um or they're playing when they're upset or in some way not 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 performing optimally um you know tiredness whatever so i think most of the mistakes professionals make come sort of in the lifestyle area um now again that's something which is improving over time when i started playing poker the typical poker player was you know fat guy at a table who just sat there and played poker all day (laughs) now when you go to the top levels you see all these guys who literally look like uh athletes um guys work out in the gym they meditate they do all this stuff so it's it, it's improving over time, but you still get obviously a lot of the um, the older school who you know don't believe in any of that stuff. Uh, this is the way I've always done it. Um, they play when they're drunk. They play when they're tired. They play when they're ill. They play in the wrong games. Uh, so yeah, I would say I would say that's that's probably the biggest mistakes. Hmm. And you know, is it possible for a beginner to beat a pro? Like let's oh, say yeah. it is, and does that happen? Oh often? yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is this is this is the this is the beauty of poker. This is the absolute beauty of poker. That's and I hear pros freaking out about it, saying this guy he doesn't even know how to play, and he beat me. It's <laughs> like this is what we need. We you absolutely need this. Like you don't get bad chess players challenging good chess players, chess grandmasters to play for money because the chess grandmaster wins every single time. Yeah, uh, you. Any, anything where the more skilled player wins all the time, you just people won't gamble on it. But in poker, luck is actually a bigger factor in the short term than skill. So you could have the worst player in the world playing the best player in the world, and they'll still win 20 to 25% of the time, probably. Uh, and the other thing is because of that, like if you're a tennis fanatic, let's say, and you play at your local club, that's the level you play at and you can never get any higher. You can't turn up at Wimbledon and say, I want to play and they'll let you win and play right, against yeah. Federer. That, that won't happen. But anybody can play anybody they want in the poker world. So at the World Series of Poker every year, you have guys who literally just play in, 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 in home games at home and play you know, five or six times a year. But they turn up and they might be sitting at the, ta- at the same table as one of the best professionals in the world. Uh, Phil Ivey, Phil Helmuth, whoever, and they get to play with them, and they'll and they will win hands against them, and they get home, and they get to go home and tell their friends a great story, um, and that's really one of the things which makes poker unique: the fact that everybody will play with everybody else, and the fact that even the weaker player can win. Um, the way I describe it is that when you're a poker player, tournament poker player in particular, essentially you're buying lottery tickets. So let's imagine there's a hundred players in a tournament. Um, so they all pay the same amount. Now, the way the skill edge of the pro um, manifests itself is that they get more tickets. So maybe the, 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 the pro has 20 tickets and the worst player in the field only has one ticket. So the pro has 20 times more chances to win. But the weakest player in the field with his one ticket might still win. Uh, um, it's, it's still a possibility. And we have had cases even of the World Series main event where very, very weak amateur players have won um and that's that's crucial to the appeal of poker the fact that uh, the weaker players can win and can anyone join the world series of poker can i just like pop in yeah. and just say i want to buy in and away i go that's possible for yeah. anyone to do all you need is the money that is literally the and only bar of entry as a... the, the main event is ten thousand um, and over. then they have they have smaller buy-ins down to down to a few hundred dollars um i i the, the very first Irish Open I played, uh, 
2007, 2008, whatever, just before the crash. Uh, so it was like the peak of Celtic Tiger Ireland. Um, so back then, the Irish Open was a big deal. They guaranteed a three million prize pool and the buy-in was 4,200 euro, I think. And it was held in City West. And I remember my wife dropped me off at the um, the entrance and I walked up the long uh, the long uh, approach to City West. And on the way, I met a guy and he was carrying like a golf bag. And he was looking at all the people going by. He couldn't understand why uh, so many people were wandering by. And he said, what's going on here? And I said, oh, it's the Irish Poker Open. And he said, oh, okay, what's that? What's what, what's poker? And I said, you know, it's like a, it's a card game. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Is, is it like whist? <laughs> uh, and I was like, it's not really like whist, but it is a card game. And he was saying, okay, so like you guys have all qualified or something. Is that how you get into it? And I said, no, no, anybody who's 4,200 euro can enter. That's just the nature <laughs> of poker. Uh, and then I went up and I entered. And as I was walking out of the room, I looked around and I saw him in the queue to enter as well. And he clearly never played poker before. He didn't even know what poker was, but all he needed to enter was his 4,200 euros. So away he went. Did he win? How did he get on? No. <laughs> he, he definitely got on better than me because I, I was the second person out that year, second person eliminated that year. And, he, and I know who the first was and it wasn't him. So whoever he was, he did better than me. But yeah, I never saw him again. So I'm guessing that poker didn't stick as a, a, a as a major passion for him. But um, but yeah, like you do get people, and since money is the only requirement of entry, you get lots of rich businessmen who do it as a hobby. Um, people who are successful in other areas of life, uh, and the thing is, because of the luck factor, you know, again. Uh, even though they might not be as skilled as their opponents, there's still a chance that they will win. So that's something they enjoy. And I mean, you've played a lot of games uh, throughout your life and I'm sure there's a lot of moments that you really enjoyed, but do any, is there any like moments or highlights of your career that you just, that, that were just amazing? I, I guess what are, what were the kind of highlights of your career? Like what moments did you really, really enjoy? Um, Two spring to mind. One is because I'm predominantly an online player. Uh, there's a tournament every week called Super Tuesday, uh, which is it's not as big as it used to be. But back when this was seven or eight years ago, it, it was a big thing. Mm. Um, I used to play satellite tournaments to it, which which meant you played to try and get into that tournament. But if you qualified for the tournament, you were allowed to unregister for the tournament and take the money instead. So that's essentially what I was doing. I would play. 30 or 40 satellites to this tournament. Typically I'd win entry three or four times, but I would unregister the tournament and and take the three or $4,000. And that was very lucrative for me, but occasionally a a satellite would go on a little bit too long and the tournament would have started. So you would be thrown straight into the tournament and you wouldn't be able to unregister and you would have to play the tournament. Um, So I wouldn't play the last few satellites because of that. um, Because I didn't actually want to play the the thousand dollar tournament because thousand dollar tournaments online are very, very difficult. Uh, but there was one week where the last satellite that I normally played went on longer than normal. And I did end up getting thrown into the tournament. So I ended up having, I was intending to take the night off because my working day on Tuesdays was get up early, play all the satellites and then quit when the actual tournament starts. Um, but I ended up having to play the tournament. So I was, I, I was playing it all night and um, not feeling particularly positive about the fact that I had to play this tournament. Uh, I ended up... Um, chopping it which a chop is when two or three players at the end of a tournament agree to split the money uh, rather than play it out um so i ended up uh, chopping it for eighty five thousand dollars and n- not having intended to play the tournament 
so that was that was one highlight uh, which came to mind. Live, um, I started playing in two thousand and seven. Uh, I first I, w- I went to the World Series first in two thousand and eight, and the World Series is basically the Olympics of poker. All the best players are there. It's an amazing experience. It's in Vegas in the summer. There's so many tournaments you can play. Uh, also lots of recreations you meet lots of interesting people mm. uh, it's just a great experience it's been described as like summer camp for poker players <laughs> um, so I went to this summer camp every year from 2008 to 2014 and had a good time but never did well <laughs> every year I lost twenty twenty five thousand dollars a couple of years I broke even but yeah my record was pretty bad um, and I thought okay well it's always going to be like this uh, so I think it was 2014 I decided I'd stay home. Uh, and um, But then in 2015, I went back again. And I ended up um, getting to the final table of uh, one of the events. And officially, I was second. But we actually did a chop again. We split the money when we got down to the last two. Um, that was an r- incredible experience because... I was getting tons of like messages from home. People were watching it. You were able to watch it in, in real time at the time uh, online. Uh, people were sending me pictures of like card clubs all over Ireland where they had it on a TV screen and everything had stopped and people were just watching wow. <laughs> uh, as, I, as I was going deeper, deeper. And when I got heads up and we were actually playing for the, the, the World Series bracelet, uh, yeah, it, it felt like Irish poker just ground to a stop. To, uh, to see if I was going to win. Now, unfortunately, I didn't win. But still, it was a hugely tremendous positive experience. And obviously, the um, the $300,000 I got out of it was, was, was also uh, positive. But it was nice because every point up to that when I got to Vegas, I just thought like, there came a certain point where I thought, am I just wasting my time here? Am I just going over here and dumping off $20,000 every year and, and never having a a positive experience but again we're back to the thing of more negative experiences than positive experiences that's just the nature of poker eventually i did get that huge big positive experience and it it more than made up for everything else wow what an amazing story and you know you've written like satellite poker you mentioned that and you've written a whole book about satellite poker strategy and so on and i'm sure there's a lot of detail in there but um if you could give the listeners perhaps like three 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 key strategies or whatever so people can i don't know enter these games and succeed sure, sure yeah I, I mean I, I i specialized in satellites online for years because they were the softest tournaments and i already described how on tuesdays i, I would play satellites for the big tournament mm. not intending to even play the big tournament just take the what we call the satellite dollars so i sort of perfected that that that's that particular game uh, format the three biggest things are first of all in a normal tournament you're trying to come first um, because that's where the biggest prize is for mm. If you're not going to come first, you want to come second. And if you don't come second, you want to come third and so on down. In a satellite, typically, like for the Irish Open, when there's a satellite, uh, there might be 20 entries to the Irish Open as the prizes. So that means you're not trying to come first. You're trying to come in the top 20. The top 20 prizes are all the same. So therefore, that means you have to have a different strategy. You are literally just trying to survive until the last 20 rather than uh, win all the chips and win the tournament that way. So because of that, you have to play a lot more cautiously. You have to, there's there's mathematical principles where when you're considering calling for all of your chips, uh, you need to 
have a much stronger hand than normal. So just play tight, way tighter in general. Um, remember that you're just trying to survive until the top 20 or whatever the number of seats is. Um, and, uh, and adjust accordingly. And sometimes people have, they say they, that they're not sure how they would change their approach. But when I say to them, look, if I told you that we're going to have a poker tournament with a hundred people and the top 20 get to live, but the other 80 get to die. I can guarantee you, you would adjust your strategy correctly. Uh, so kind of treat, treat, treat that's, that, 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 that's quite a grim way to look at, but tr- kind of treat it like that. Try and think like busting this tournament is really, really bad. I, I really just want to survive against the top 20. And how do I change my strategy based on that? Hmm. that that's interesting. And you know, um, like let's say there's a, there's a player, a beginner, a complete beginner, um, and who wants to earn a bit of cash, maybe perhaps during the weekend, or kind of like what you did, if you have free time, go 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 play online poker and see what happens. Um, what advice would you give to such an individual purely just to make some cash, just to just have some extra source of income? Yeah, f- f- find very soft games and make sure that you are actually a winning player in those games. Um, study the game a lot. Uh, it's study is more and more crucial now when i started the difficulty was that there was actually very little good content out there Hmm. a lot of the books were downright bad the advice was just bad um there were no there were no training videos uh there was very very little good information so the difficult part was you had to figure out a lot of stuff yourself or you had to find other people who figured it out and get them to tell you nowadays with so much free content out there it's actually uh, it's it's kind of changed. When I started, poker was like for self-starters and you had to be able to network very well, get friends with good players, um, exchange information, etc. Now it's more like studying for a university degree where there's loads of information out there. Uh, the, the, the challenge is to basically assimilate it all um, and study it. So if you, the, the, the people I see do well poker now compared to when i started are not so much the guys who's who network really well as just the guys who are able to study on their own very well um so they find the right material to study they study and they apply themselves um so that so that's a big thing the other thing which has changed is that when i started poker was a lot softer in the se- in the sense that uh, people who didn't do it seriously were a lot worse um and therefore you didn't have to be that good to beat them um, so you could actually build a bankroll very, very quickly. Um, like I went from zero to a hundred thousand in 10 months. Wow. I don't think that's possible anymore online. Uh, no matter how much you study, no matter how good you are. So these days more, more, the, the more normal route, let's say, um, like when I started, the normal route was you started, you, play, you played at a low level, you made enough money to, to jump up to the next level, you played that level, you made more money and you, and, you, and you continued rising the levels that way until you were playing at the top level. Um, that doesn't really happen anymore because even the lower levels are not beatable by that much. So like guys who are playing $1 tournaments, uh, you know, back when I started, it was possible to make a few hundred dollars a week playing those tournaments. Now, probably the top winning players are maybe only making 10 or $20. So it's very difficult to move up to the stakes. So typically what tends to happen now instead is the way guys do rise up is they they play the lowest levels. Hmm. They prove over a reasonable sample size that they are winning players. So, you know, they play a couple of thousand tournaments and they've won 600 bucks or whatever so they've proven that they're winning players and then they go to um backing stables uh or stakers 
when they say, look, I'm a winning player. I think I could beat the higher levels, um, but I don't have the money. Uh, so I need somebody to give me the money. So, so, so the way staking works is the, the backer provides the money to play at the, at the higher level. Usually also provides training and coaching as well um, so that the player will improve and get better. And then the profits are split typically 50-50 between the players and the, uh, and the backer who's providing the money. So, so that's more usually the route uh, to becoming a professional these days. Right. Okay. And I'm also curious if I know, like, what's it like to be a professional poker player? Because, like, I mean, it's a uncommon thing to be, to you know, to have this, such a career. And I'm curious to know, like, what does a typical day look like for you? Obviously not in the coronavirus situation, but <laughs> on, on a typical basis, what what does a typical kind of a, yeah, day look like for you? Yeah, well, again, there's two there's two answers to this. Uh, again, pre coronavirus, it it depended on whether um, I was playing online or live. Mm-hmm. When I'm at home, I only play online. So typical day, and this and since coronavirus, these are all my days now. Mm-hmm. Uh, get get up pretty late, uh, usually afternoon. Um, go out for a run. Uh, one hour most days. Uh, once a week, I do a long four or five hour run. Um, come back, have breakfast, uh, do whatever else I have to do in terms of uh, answering emails or social media or interviews or whatever else. Um, usually get that all squared away by 5.30 or so. Uh, and then I start playing online. Um, and then I'm playing online typically until 1 or 2 a.m., uh, sometimes later, sometimes 4 a.m., sometimes I'm done by midnight. Um and then afterwards, I do some study. I again do any stuff that's come up during the day, answer emails. Because when I'm playing online, I basically block out the world and I just concentrate on playing online. So if people right, are sending yeah. me messages, I'm ignoring all that stuff. But I answer all that stuff afterwards. Uh, and yeah, that's a typical day when I'm at home. Typical day when I'm away uh, is, is completely different. Um, I travel pretty much only to play poker tournaments these days. Um, so. For example, Unibet event, Unibet, my sponsors. If I go to a Unibet open, uh, the day will be get up, do some um, social media content or do an interview with uh, poker journalists or whatever else they've lined up for me before play. Uh, then play normally starts midday. So it's a completely different time. It's almost like being in a different time zone. When I'm at home, my working my working day in, in the sense of when I start playing starts 5.30 to 7 p.m. and goes well into the night. When you're playing live, typically you're starting at midday. So start playing at midday and then play for however long I have to. Uh, live tournaments are quite grueling. They're often 12-hour days or, or sometimes even longer, sometimes 14-hour days. So if you bust the tournament, you've done, but there's always other tournaments you can play. So typically I'm playing until midnight or, or later most days uh, when I'm away on a live trip. Then, you know, get something to eat, go to bed and get up the next day and, and do the same thing over again. Um, that's pretty much the, 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 the live grind. And like, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed or just unfocused in general? When you just when when you don't feel like playing poker, um, do you just stop playing, or like, what kind of strategies do you use to overcome overcome this and so on? Yeah, burn, burn, burnout is definitely a big thing among uh, poker players because you you are doing the same thing over and over again. Like, once you've learned the game and you've mastered the game, 
it's really just a case of like you're repeating the same thing over and over again. It's it, it's really not very exciting. It's just <laughs> like you're looking at your cards. Nine times out of ten, you're just folding your cards, and that's the end of the that's the end of the experience for for that hand. Uh, you're waiting for the next hand now. So you have to have that sort of ability to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Um, I I don't struggle much with burnout compared to other players. I don't know why that is. Um, I think it might be that my main interest in poker is in the strategy element and I want to play as well as I can and I'm less worried about the results and the outcomes. So even when I came second in my big event in Vegas, uh, people who were watching me back home said like, you didn't look excited at all. Like, did you not feel good? And I was like, yeah, I felt good. Sure, I felt good. But like, I'm not jumping around excited. It's just I'm concentrating on what I have to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, so because I sort of have that level emotional keel, I think I don't suffer from burnout as much as people who sort of like waver up and down. They're super excited. Then it doesn't work out. They're super sad. They need to take a few days off. People who struggle more with the emotional side, yeah, generally taking a few days off is the best thing. Uh, just just clear your head. Um, obviously, within days, you will have periods, you know, where you don't something bad happens and you have to recover from it. Uh, I just have a sort of a set thing I do every time something bad happens and I don't feel good. Uh, I just take a deep breath, and that's sort of like more than anything. Apart from the fact, oxygen is good for your obviously good for your brain. It's also just like a mental reboot. It's like, okay, well, that's gone now. Just move on to the next thing um, and d- don't think about it. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like wiping the memory almost. Um, and it's similar. Uh, same thing goes from day to day too. Like I've already spoken or whined maybe a bit too much about how difficult it is to be a tournament player. But one of the difficult things, one of the things that makes it difficult is that when you're a, an online tournament player, uh, so when you start playing, your first major experience of the day will be a bad one, almost, pretty much always. You'll be playing some tournament. Uh, you will, you, you, you'll be all in, and you'll have the better hand, but you'll lose. Um, it's what we refer to in poker as a bad. And that piece. always happens, pretty much on a like. Yeah, because you're playing twelve game. tournaments, and you know, you. you in, in, in 11 of your tournaments, they might be going well, but one of them, that's going to happen. That's going to be the first major thing that registers in your in your right, head, okay. let's say, as an experience that day. So your your first major experience is bad. Your, your, your last major experience of the day, of the working day, 99 times out of 100, will be you are deep in some tournament. There's a lot of money to be won for first place. You're focused on trying to win the tournament. And then with 17 people left or 14 people left or whatever the number is, you know, you're, you're thinking maybe this is the night I win that tournament with 50,000 for first and you bust in 14th and you, and instead of that 50,000 for first, you get 300 for 14th (laughs) and you're incredibly disappointed and deflated. That will be your, your, your last major experience, your last game uh, of the day, uh, 99 times out of a hundred. The other, the other one time will be the time you do actually win um, and, and you'll feel brilliant. But because of that, so you have this sort of day where it starts badly and it ends badly. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's, again, that's difficult for people to deal with. We're, we're much better at dealing with situations where things end well or things start well. So I do end most of the days feeling, oh, crap. You know, that just happened. 
Um, but then I go to sleep and I wake up the next morning and uh, it feels almost like stupidity, but it's like, that's all gone. Today's going to be different. Today's going to be the day I win the tournament. Um, and I'm just happy and excited to play again. Um, so I, so, so I basically don't dwell on, on the sort of negative experiences. And I, I have seen other poker players, better poker players than me, not last in the game because they're not able to get past the bad stuff that happens. And it just kind of, it, it accumulates them and eventually winds, grinds them down. But for me, it's, that's never really been a problem. So it's really just the emotional aspect of it, not, not get caught yeah. up in things and have a mentally strong mind. And, you know, do you follow any med- meditation? I know running for you is sort of a meditation in, in itself, but do yeah. you have any routines or anything you do that helps you stay such so positive and stay mentally sane when you're, when you're playing? Yeah, I do. I, I do meditation as well. Um, I usually do a couple of minutes when I get up and mm. a couple of minutes just before I start to play. That's just to sort of clear the head um, and focus. I also on, as, as it comes near to the time to play, I think I start thinking about poker. It's almost like a, a mental warm up. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I, if I've been studying something recently, I remind myself of what I learned. Uh, if I played a hand badly the previous day and I've looked at it in the solvers and realized I played it badly, I go through that again to remind myself not to make that mistake. Um, I also do this thing. It's, it's kind of controversial in poker because a lot of the, the, there's a sort of a positivity movement where people think, um, you know, you've got to be positive and you've got to stay positive and uh, positive thinking, etc. Hmm. I absolutely don't subscribe to that <laughs> at all because I think if you think like that, you're just going to be perpetually disappointed. Um, and I, I wrote about this in my blog once, but uh, there was a guy who ran for vice president in the nineties, uh, Stockdale, I think his problem his, his name was, and he had been a long term prisoner of war during uh, Korea or Vietnam. I don't remember which one. And he wrote a book about the experience afterwards. And it gave rise to something which is called the Stockdale Paradox. And what that was is he was asked, like, when you were a prisoner of war and you were kept in horrible conditions, etc., like, how did you stay sane? Did you stay positive? And his response was, no. Uh, absolutely the worst thing you could be was an optimist. The optimists were screwed. They were the first people to, to crack because they will go... And they would say to themselves, oh, we'll be out by Easter. It's going to be fine. The government will get us out. And then it doesn't happen. (laughs) And then they say, it's fine. We'll be out by summer. And then that doesn't happen. And they say, no, no, it's okay. We'll be be out by by Christmas. And that doesn't happen. And eventually just grinds them down and they lose their mind. Whereas the guys who are sort of realistic and look, this is the current reality. We just have to deal with it. Whatever happens, happens. They're the ones who uh, survive long-term. And I think it's the same in poker. Um, you have to sort of realize there's going to be a lot of negative experiences and prepare yourself for them rather than thinking, yes, this is going to be great today. And then when something bad happens, you're, you're devastated. So I used to do this when I was running as well. My coach uh, used to get me to do this exercise where when I was preparing for a big race, we would talk about every single thing that could possibly go wrong in the race. Uh, there wasn't, there was no positive thinking. It was all negative thinking. It was like, what if you feel if your stomach is upset? How is that going to feel? How are you going to react? What if the weather's really terrible? Uh, what if you just feel really bad? What if one of the other runners starts much faster than you expect? Uh, so, essentially, what I was doing was pre- was preparing myself mentally for all the bad stuff that could happen. So then, that if it did happen in a race, essentially, I'd rehearsed for it, um, and I, I, I and I could respond and react to it better. Um, 
I do the same when I, if, if, if I'm preparing for a big poker tournament, like if I make a big final table. Um, so, you know, you, you make the final table, you finish for the night, you go home and you have to think about it. You get up the next morning. What I don't do is I don't come in all excited thinking, I'm going to win this one, I'm going to win this one. What, what, what I am focusing on, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what happens if I lose a big hand early on and I lose most of my chips? What happens if I get really unlucky? How, how is that going to feel? Uh, just try and anticipate all the bad stuff that could happen. Um, and then because you've, because I prepared for it mentally, if it does happen, um, and like nobody ever wins a poker tournament by just winning every hand, and uh, there's always setbacks. So, um, yeah, I refer to this as a pre-mortem. It's the opposite of a post-mortem. A post-mortem is where you think about everything that went wrong and what you need to change and what you can learn from it. A pre-mortem is where you anticipate everything that could go wrong and how, how you'll respond to it. So, um, yeah, that's I think that's kind of the 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 cornerstone of my mental mindset and preparation well that's a very interesting approach and that kind of reminds me of michael phelps um like i i I was studying a bit of michael phelps and basically his coach made him re you know made him visualize all the different scenarios like you were saying you know what what happens if you're if this happens what happened if this happens and one of the things that they visualized was um his goggles falling off during the race and that actually happened in the 2008 Olympics, and he that happened, and he won the race because he yeah. visualized the whole aspect, of, you know, yeah. of, of things going wrong. So I think that what you said there, that kind of corresponds to that as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because because he visualized it, he 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 responded much better than if it had come as a complete shock to him and just completely threw him. And in poker, there's so many things which can 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 throw you off. You know, other people being shitty to you at the table, other people saying being aggressive, mm, other yeah. uh, the bad running cards, etc. So, if you're the if you, if you're the sort of like everything has to be great, everything has to be positive, rah rah person, you're just going to be very easy happen, to put yeah. off your game. Um, but I, I, you do see a lot of people come from the sports world into poker, and they sort of have the natural mindset for it. And I think that's because. This sort of thing, we're used to it from other sports. Uh, you see a lot of snooker players play very well, poker very well. And you can understand why they're used to having to control their emotions as well. They're used to doing the same things over and over again uh, and practicing the same stuff over and over again. So that sort of sporting mindset um, definitely translates into poker. It, it, essentially, a few years ago, they tried to rebrand poker as a mind sport. Um, and there, there is an aspect to it, which is essentially that it's a mental sport. The same approaches that work for sport will work for poker, um, applied purely to the mind, though. Hmm. And, you know, you also mentioned that you study before going to bed. So you, you, you play your poker until like after midnight or so on. And then you study for about an hour or so before you go to bed. Um, what sort of stuff do you study? Is it just books you're reading? Uh, what, yeah, what sort of stuff do you study? There's a couple of books, but for the most part, my my study these days is with the solvers, uh, which are these software tools where you can you can set up situations and the solver will work out what the optimal strategy is. Oh. Um, so I do a lot of work with solvers. Solvers appeared on the scene a few years ago. I was one of the early adapters. Um, I found them amazing because before that, if I played a hand and I wasn't sure I played it correctly, all I could really do was ask all the best poker players what they thought I should have done. And if I asked five different guys, often I got five different answers. And then it came down to who I believed the most. And there was, there was no certainty, no clarity. Now with a solver, you can literally just program all the variables in and say, this is the situation, this is the range of hands i think my opponent has 
these are all the situations that are relevant to the hand and the solver will go back and say, right, this is what you should have done. This is your strategy. So because there's that certainty, um, I find that very motivating because uh, I trust the information that comes out of it more than I trusted the information from the, my five friends who gave me five different answers uh, mm. years ago. So I do a lot of work with the solvers um, sometimes looking at hands that I've played that I'm not sure about, sometimes just looking at standard situations that arise over and over again, uh, try and memorize as much as possible about what the correct strategy is. Um, there's a few books I, I read too, but for the most part, it's, it's, it's working with the solvers. And how does the whole solver work? Do you just kind of, is it like, you, do you program it or is it just you give the input on the AI or whatever gives you the output of what you need to do? Yeah, there's a couple of different solvers. Um, most of the most of them are, are, are what we call game theory solvers. So you essentially you put in the inputs. So you say this is the situation, this is the stack size, these these are the cards I had, this is the opponent I was up against, these are all the possible hands I think he could have had, these are the cards that came on the board, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, these are the bet sizes that I would think are sensible in this situation. And the solver goes away and works out a what's called a game theory optimal solution, which means that if both players are playing absolutely perfectly, this is the way the hand should play out. Um, That's usually the first stage. The second stage is, okay, well, I don't think my opponent is playing perfectly. I mean, who does? This is the way I think he actually plays. So if this is his strategy, then how does that change my strategy? And then you you run another another solve, essentially, to see what your strategy should have been in game. that's the game theory solvers. Uh, there's another solver, very prominent solver called Poker Snowy, which is a artificial intelligence tool. And the way Poker Snowy has learned is by just playing gazillions of hands against itself and seeing what works the most. It uses an artificial intelligence uh, heuristic called um, post regret minimization, which is what 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 loses what what works out the best in practice. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of situations where uh, the game theory solvers are limited and they can't give you much clarity, but Snowy can because Snowy looks at every possible situation. Um, so yeah, and it's, Snowy is a lot simpler to use uh, because you literally just put in your cards and whatever amount of chips you had, and then it how the hand played out, and it can give you an evaluation at every stage of the hand what you should what what, what it would have done. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that's part of it. You're, you, you're always just giving inputs um, and and interpreting the output from the solver. Interpreting the output is very important because you need, obviously when you play a hand and you think you played it badly, um, part of you just wants to know if you, if you did play it badly. But more important than that is if you did play it badly, you need to figure out not just what you should have done, but why that was the correct play. Um, so you have to be able, like the solver will tell you what the right move is, but it won't tell you why. It'll just say, this is the right move. And you know, if, if, you, if you could ask a solver, why is this the right move? The only answer you would ever get is because this is the move that makes me the most profit in the long term. It won't be able to explain like you should have done this because this. Uh, but as you get more experience with poker, player, with poker and, and, and solvers, you start noticing patterns and you notice that, oh, well, this is similar to that previous hand and, the solution is very similar. So in in this subclass of situations that are all like this, uh, when I have top pair, I should bet. But in this other subclass, which is slightly different, when I have top pair, I should check. So you start to see patterns and then you internalize um, 
sort of strategic heuristics that you use. Um, and I do a lot of coaching as well. And a lot of my coaching is just sort of interpreting the solver output for, uh, for the people I coach. I say, okay, well, this is what the solver says. The solver says you should have done this. And the reason why you should have done this is because of factors A, B, and C. And anytime you find yourself in this, in that situation in the future, if it's A, B, and C, you should always do this. But if it's not A, B, and C, it's D, E, and F, uh, it'll be a different solution. That's actually very interesting. I never heard of the solver thing before, but it makes complete sense because like always, you're always playing poker in online or offline. And, you know, there's no way to know whether or not you made a right decision. But in order, in order for you to check whether or whether you made the right decision, you input your play into the solver and then you yeah. get feedback. And that way you're always learning. Is that kind yeah. of, do I get the right idea? That's really cool. That's exactly it. You're, wow. you're, 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 you're constantly learning. And chess, poker is not new in this. Chess, this, is, this already happened in chess uh, a long time before poker. Hmm. The, uh, the artificial intelligence programs in chess got much better to the point where they were better than the strongest human players. So now the way chess grandmasters train essentially is they train against the computers and hmm. they train themselves. They play as much as they can. They learn as much as they can. They try and internalize patterns um and the job of being a, a chess grandmaster is who can learn from the computers the best and reproduce it under live conditions poker's moving the same way uh it's all about learning from the solvers and being then when you're actually playing being able to recall that or remember that or apply that um and and, and play that way the solvers have completely revolutionized poker in that sense that like before the best information was kind of like what top players thought and a top mm-hmm. player would say, okay, well in situation a always do B, but then another top player would say, actually, no, you shouldn't do B, you should do C. Uh, and then another guy would say, you're both wrong. You should do right, D. Yeah. And then you, there was this constant confusion. Now, now you can have absolute clarity. The, you can't argue with the solver. You can, you can say maybe the, the, the parameters that you set up are, are not correct or, or you can argue about, well, maybe the guy doesn't actually have these hands that you think he has. He has these other hands. But you can't argue with the actual strategy that comes out of the solver. So, And there's a lot of things which humans thought were really, really bad strategy, even the top players, which the solvers have proven is not bad strategy. And you know there used to be a debate in poker the classic situation is uh i don't know how much you know about have you played you played poker yeah just occasionally as a hobby yeah okay so in in poker the two people who have to post uh money into the pot before the start of the hand are the small blind and the big blind mm. and that just gets the action started so the player to the right left of the big blind is the first to act and then players can either call raise or fold and it comes around the classic situation in poker was always what happens if everybody folds around to the small blind what should he do and a lot of the top players used to say well the one thing he should never do is just call he should either raise or fold Uh, calling is really bad strategy Uh, and a lot of the top players believed this and then when the solvers came on the scene they pretty much proved that usually the small blind if he has a hand he wants to play should call rather than raise Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that um without getting too technical 
by calling rather than raising you, you get to play more hands. Uh, you're putting less money into the pot at a positional disadvantage, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow all the top humans have missed this <laughs> and actually believed the calling was bad. Uh, and uh, now we know for sure that uh, in most situations, uh, just calling is the correct play. Um, that's just that's just one of many examples of how the solvers have sort of educated human players because uh human player the human brain is a wonderful computer um wonderful decision maker but it has a large number of design flaws um cognitive biases that make us believe stuff that isn't true uh for example we see patterns that aren't really there um we see patterns in randomness uh and you see this in poker people will say oh every time i do this something bad happens uh and that's just the brain looking for a pattern that isn't really there. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's what, where the whole area of superstition comes as well. People think, oh, every time I get a haircut, I bust my next tournament. Or every time I shave in the morning, I do really well. You know, we see all these stupid patterns that really have nothing to do with anything. Um, and we have all these cognitive biases as well, where something works out for us once in a big situation, and therefore we think it must have been a great play. Um, but we forget about all the other situations where it didn't work out for us. Mm, yeah. um, as I read a really good book on this, good book on this called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman on all the cognitive biases that the human brain is, is subject to. And you see that over and over again in poker. So a lot of those cognitive biases, even the top players have them. And as a result, uh, humans have made certain types of mistakes when it comes to poker strategy. And does the solver take into account bluffing because bluffing is a big part of poker i i yeah, assume sure and um, it does take into account okay yeah it does what, what again we're, we're, we're getting a little bit technical here so stop me if it, if it gets too much <laughs> but what this what, what the solver does in it in, in a situation is like let's imagine we get to the river right i'm, I'm playing against you and there's a hundred euro in the pot and i bet i bet a hundred euro now if you have a hand which can only beat a bluff, uh, you have to decide whether you think I'm bluffing or not to call. So if you think that I'm bluffing more than half of the time, you should call because you'll win more than half of the time uh, with your hand which just beats a bluff. But if I'm bluffing less than half the time, you should fold because even though I'll be bluffing some of the time, you're not going to win half the time and you have to put in 100 to win 100. So uh, so, so, so you need to uh, be... Yeah, so it comes down to bluffing frequency. Now, what a solver will do is it will bluff at exactly the right frequency. In that situation, it will be bluffing. Uh, well, actually, it's a third of the time I need to be bluffing because you're getting two to one. It will it, it, it will be bluffing one third of the time, and it will have a have a proper hand two thirds of the time. Um, so, and then it has certain ways of deciding which hands it's going to bluff with. So it'll think about all of the possible hands it could get to the river with, and it will decide what are the best hands to bluff with, and. Uh, again, we're getting really technical here, but it uses a thing called blockers. So it will think about the hands that you could have that you're definitely going to call with. Like, let's say, uh, let's say the highest card on, on the board is a queen. So if I bet and you have ace queen or king queen, you're going to call for sure. Now I'm bluffing, but I can't, I can't, I can't beat a queen. But if I want to bluff in this situation, I'm better picking a hand that has an ace or a king 
so if I have ace five, for example, that's a better bluff than 10 nine, because if I have ace five, it's less likely you have ace queen uh, because there's only three aces out there now uh, rather than four. So it uses um, blockers in that way. Uh, and similarly, when it's deciding whether to call only beating a bluff, it thinks, okay, well, what are the hands that my opponent could be bluffing with? And if I have cards that would be in those hands, that's a bad thing because it makes it less likely he's bluffing. But if I have cards that would be in his strong hands that he bets in this situation, that's a good thing because it makes it less likely he has a strong hand and he doesn't have a bluff. And this is one of the things, again, which has educated the way human humans think. Once we started working with solvers and we saw that this was how solvers decide whether to bluff or not, uh, humans started doing the same, basically. That's fascinating. And, you know, just, we obviously heard stories of, you know, chess masters being beaten by AI. Has this happened in poker? Or like, or is it just um, assumed yes, it has. that a pro player will lose against a solver? It's, it's, it's happening already, yeah. It's happening in a very limited area. Um, heads of poker is where only two people are playing. Uh, the solvers and AIs are already better than the best humans in that. And there have been some matches between the top human heads of players and AI and AI wins um, because that's rel- well, it's not easy to solve, but it's solvable. Um, poker will never be completely solved uh, by, by the solvers. And the reason for that is it's actually pretty, pretty simple to put it into real terms. Poker is a much bigger game than chess or any other game except, I think, Go. Um, there are more what, are, what, are, what we refer to as game, as, as game, spa- uh, game points. Like in chess, player A makes, makes a move to start the game. That's one particular game space. The mm. computer has to work out what's the best response to that. When it does that, we're into another game space, and, and it builds a game tree of all these different points, and it works out what to do in every possible scenario. And there are billions and billions of possible scenarios, but it, but it can work them all out. Because there are so many variables in poker, that the, the, the game space is too big. And the game space for No Limit Hold'em, uh, when nine players are playing it, which, t- which is what you get at a typical table, is bigger than the number of electrons in the universe. So how would you even, how would a solver even store its solution, even if the solver could somehow work out the solution, and even if it could use the entire unit, the entire universe as its internal memory, and store each particular game point on just one electron, it would run out of electrons. It wouldn't be able to store the um, store the the solution. So because of that, we, we we can say with absolute certainty that the solvers will never completely solve the game uh, of poker because because the game is just too big. However, that's a nice theoretical thing. From a purely practical point of view, we're almost at the stage now where the best computer programs play even nine-handed poker better than the best humans. That's a huge issue in particular for online poker because if it becomes readily available that there are programs out there that play better than humans, then people can program bots. Um, Mm. I played online backgammon before I played online poker and bots killed backgammon because backgammon is a smaller game. People were able to program bots that played perfectly. Um, and 
suddenly you couldn't win anymore. Same thing, unfortunately, could very well be in the future for poker. The poker sites respond by uh, trying to detect people who are using bots um, uh, and banning their accounts. So the, the poker sites kind of recognize that this is the biggest long-term threat to poker. People, somebody being able to just program a bot uh, to play perfectly or close to perfectly and beat all the humans and take all the money. And obviously a bot can play 24 or 24 seven and as many tables as it's allowed to play, etc. So um, yeah, that's because we're at, we're, we are at that stage now, that is a huge concern for the future. It will probably, I mean, well, I guess never say never. It might be a thing in live poker too. I mean, with, uh, it could happen. glass and all the rest of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you could, you know, uh, there's, there's talk about banning devices and there was a cheating scandal last year. People still don't know how the guy did it, but there was a guy playing a tele, uh, a live-streamed cash game for over a long period who was clearly cheating, mm. uh, Mike Postle in the States. And presumably he was getting fed information from somebody on the outside. Um, but we, yeah, they still haven't figured it out. But that 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 could be an issue with live poker down down the line too so there's you know there's there's talks of stuff like banning all devices at the table um so that you that you show you're only dealing with uh with the with the players that you're there and they're and they're not communicating with anybody on the outside um so live poker it's probably easier to keep it um keep that sort of threat away but online obviously is different kettle of fish Hmm. and you know you also mentioned books um including thinking fast and slow is there any like three to five books that you recommended or gifted the most to other people? Do any book, books come to mind? Yeah, um, there's a really good book on the whole mental side of poker. And I think I've managed to convey that the mental side is probably the most important thing. Yeah. The Mental Game of Poker, written by an American um, sports psychologist called Jared Tender, who moved across from golf to poker and sort of talked about the strategies and the way poker players should, should um, approach mindset. Uh, I should say the, the, the book was co-written by Barry Carter, who also co-wrote my book, but I'm not, I'm not biased on this matter. I do <laughs> genuinely believe that the mental game of poker, despite Barry's involvement, uh, Barry didn't manage to deteriorate the book too much. And it, it still is an amazing book. Uh, that's that, that's one poker book. The best poker strategy book that I've read in the, in in the last few years is um, a book by a really nice guy from Costa Rica, um, Michael Acevedo, and it's called Modern Poker Theory. And the reason why that book is so good is it very succinctly explains what the solvers do, what the solvers are teaching us about poker, and how we can learn from that. Um, so it's a good title, Modern Poker Theory. Um, thinking, pa- thinking fast and slow, I think, is actually vital, not just for poker players, but for people in general, just to realize why we make bad decisions, why we why we get stuff wrong all the time. Um, you know, why even experts get stuff wrong. Uh, like, I mean, I think it's fairly well documented that as somebody becomes an expert in any area like politics or sports, their ability to predict the future actually gets worse because they... Uh, they fall prey to all these confirmation biases and um and actually an expert is worse generally at predict you know predicting the future that most um most investment fund managers can't outperform a random monkey throwing darts at a list of stocks and buying that way uh but this book explains perfectly why that is uh like what the what the design flaws are in the human brain that's good for everybody but it's really good for poker players because it's important for poker players to recognize when this is happening 
it's important for a poker player to say, to be able to step back and say, okay, I think this, but the reason I think this is because of this particular cognitive bias. And therefore I have to ignore this piece of information coming from my brain in this situation. It's not intuition. It's not um, pattern recognition. It's not useful information anyway. It's literally just a misfire in my brain. My brain is thinking this because my cognitive biases. So uh, yeah, I think that's that that's a super important book as well. Um, yeah, so let's let's let, let's go with those three for now. I think they're probably the the top three. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard of the thing in fast and slow, but I never heard of the other two. So I think I'll read up about it and improve my poker game so I can win win some games. Yeah. 